Hello and welcome to the Business Class Lounge, the podcast where I interview marketing leaders and executives to understand how they really think about leadership, management, finance, and more. This is a podcast from Searchpilot. My name is Will Critchlow. My guest today is someone whose book, obviously awesome, I know many of you will have read. And if you haven't, I highly recommend that you do. Best book I know of on positioning. April Dunford is a well-known author and consultant, but you may not know that she's held senior marketing leadership positions at a range of startups and big, well-known companies. She's done a million interviews about positioning, so I wanted to pick her brains about some different things. I hope you enjoy our conversation. April, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited about this conversation. Your book, Obviously Awesome, is an absolute go-to, and it's one that I kind of keep coming back to. I want to dive straight into some of the meat of the conversation today with a discussion about something I've heard you talk about a few times. So I heard you on Lenny's podcast earlier this year. One of the things you talked about was about how hard it is to quantify positioning. Yeah. So how hard it is to kind of objectively say how good your positioning is. And out of that, I think, comes a difficulty in projecting how good it's going to become and what the return on investment of working on this is going to be. Yeah. So I'm presuming you you pitch this differently to CMOs and VPs. You don't talk about ROI, probably. You talk about stories and things like that. But I want to hear from you. How should a CMO or a VP of marketing think about how to persuade a board or a CEO or whoever needs to sign off on a budget that they should do a big positioning exercise? Yeah, this is a really good question. And you know what? I'm surprised I don't get asked this more often, but (laughs) I don't. So first of all, I think about positioning as being kind of the underpinning of almost everything we do in marketing and sales. It's like a fundamental input. Like if you came to me and said, April, we got to run some campaigns. I'd go, great, let's run some campaigns, man. Let's figure that out. So first I got to know, like, who's our target for the campaigns? And what's our value proposition? Who are we competing against and why pick us versus the other guys? And all this stuff gets defined in your positioning. So if that positioning is garbage, then all my campaigns are garbage. Like that's how it works. (laughs) So the same thing goes with what we're doing in sales. Like if the story we're telling in sales is garbage, then we don't sell very well or we don't sell as much as we could. And the input for that story is, you know, why pick us versus the other guys, which is essentially your positioning. So In my opinion, like I came to the conclusion as a repeat vice president of marketing back when I was working inside companies that, well, my job is to step on the gas and drive a whole bunch of leads so that sales can close them so that we can grow revenue. But if I'm doing that with squishy positioning, there's no point in even getting it done. Like we got to back all the way up and work on this positioning. So it took me a while to figure that out. But then once I did, I was like, okay, so I'm the brand new VP marketing. We really don't want to get started on campaigns and messaging and all this other stuff we're going to do until we get the positioning right. Now, like you say, not everybody knows that or thinks like that or whatever. So I come in, I'm the brand new VP marketing. What do I do? And I can't, unfortunately, if my positioning is weak, it's killing me across all my metrics in a way that I can't just measure. Like I can't just say, oh, our conversion rate is this and that's bad, you know, If the positioning is weak, then it means bad leads are coming in because they don't really know what you are. And then they drop out as they come through your funnel because 
then they do figure it out and they're like, oh, that's not what I want. You know, I'm dropping out or I shouldn't have been in here in the first place. Sometimes you get all the way through to closing a deal because your sales team is hot, but they're selling God knows what. And then when the customer actually gets in and using the thing, they're like, oh God, this isn't what I thought it was at all. And then they drop out and you turn. So mentors are bad all over the place. You can't just point at one and say, oh, this should be better. Therefore, you know, we should look at the positioning. So that makes it hard. I can't just come in and say, you know, this is bad. It's like most metrics, right? It's individual for the company. I can't, there's no good or bad. There's sure. just better. Or and they're worse. all interconnected. Yeah. So here's what I settled on. And, and this is not as good as being able to point to a number, but my focus area has always been B2B. So I get in, I'm the brand new VP marketing. And usually at the beginning, they're going to give you a few weeks to get your feet under your desk. And so here's what I would do is I'd say, you know what? I'm going to go over and hang out with sales and see what's going on with that. So I would wander over to sales and listen in on sales calls. And weak positioning, you hear it in a first call with a customer. And it sounds like this. Customer comes in, they're qualified, or at least you think they're qualified. They come in, the rep is pitching, and the rep's talking about, here's what we do, and here's why it's so great, or whatever. And, you know, if your rep's doing a good job, and you can usually tell if your rep's doing a reasonable job, rep's doing a reasonable job, and you get, I don't know, 10 minutes into the call, four or five slides into the call, and the customer's making this face. (laughs) And there'll be this thing, and you hear it a lot, where they'll go, can you just back it up and go back to the beginning? Like, just, just go back to start and start again. Start again. I think you lost me there somewhere. Let you just go back and start again. So you hear this back it up and start at the beginning. Like, it's amazing how much you'll hear that. The second thing you'll get is the customer. It, it sounds different, but it's the same ideas. The customer goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. I get it. You're just, so you, you're just like Salesforce and you're not. Like, you're nothing like Salesforce. You're actually like nothing like Salesforce. Or this one used to kill me. Like they get the rep and the rep's doing a good job pitching and they go, yeah, I get it. But can I just do that with my accounting package? Really? Like, why wouldn't I just do that? Like I I got a spreadsheet and sort of this idea, like I get what it is, but why would I pay? Which just indicates they got no idea what your value is. So either they don't fundamentally don't get what bucket to put you in or they're putting you in a bucket and it's the wrong one. <laughs> or they think they got you in a bucket. They just think that bucket is valueless. Like it's not worth anything. And so if you're hearing enough of that, then that usually would get me worried that there's a positioning problem. Now, if you're going in and people are going, yeah, 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 sounds good, sounds good. But how much does it cost? Like that's usually a sign your positioning's okay. Like everybody understands it, they get it. They're just on the on the sales no, call to kind it. of figure out how much does it cost us to do this deal. Mm-hmm. So then maybe your problem is upstream. You're not doing a great job of lead gen, or you're just not getting enough people coming to the sales rep. But you know, if it's going good in sales, then the story works. So the positioning, you could sort of assume that the positioning works. So if it's not going good, then what I would do is I would go have lunch with the VP sales. This is my move. When I go have lunch with the VP sales and I say, hey, I've been hanging out with the team. Here's what I'm hearing, right? So I'm hearing that it, like it's taken a whole sales call before the light comes on, people get what we are. Or everyone's comparing us to Salesforce. We're like not a CRM. So what's up with that? Or you know, people act like they get it, but they don't because they don't get why we're actually charging money for it. And usually when I point that out, the VP sales will say, you're right. Yeah. And we hear it all the time. 
except they don't know what positioning is. And so often what you'll get is the VP sales will be complaining about product. Like, I can't sell this thing. It's right. too hard to sell. Mm -hmm. Like this, this feature Missing is too complicated, feature. you know, and they're complaining about product, but what it actually is is positioning, right? The story's not clear. So I go have lunch with the VP sales. If the VP of sales says, yeah, all that stuff you saw, I see it too. I agree. Then I said, well, look, like in marketing, we call that positioning. Like when was the last time we looked at our positioning? And the answer is always like, we've never looked at it, April. And then I say, okay, well, I'm not saying it's bad, but we should look at it because if we could tighten that up, that would really help what we're doing in these sales calls, right? Yeah, right. Then I would go do the same, have the same lunch with the head of product and say, look, I've been sitting over with sales and here's what I hear. And, you know, VP sales thinks this is a product thing. Like this is too confusing, but I actually think the story is bad. Like it's just not clicking. We got all these happy customers, but there's something that's not clicking for a prospect. And usually the head of product will agree with me too. Now I got head of sales, head of product. Now I go to the CEO and I say, look, I want to build all these nice campaigns and stuff that you want, but I'm worried the story is squishy. And so if we build all these campaigns on this squishy story, that's kind of a waste of money. And so I was hanging out with sales and here's what I'm hearing. And I'm not saying it's bad, but I think it's worth spending a day or two, get the team together and we're going to revisit it. And let's just see where we get. And usually the response from the CEO is, well, what does John think over in sales? <laughs> and I was like, I don't know. We should call him. <laughs> But I already got John. <laughs> we already had that lunch. <laughs> so then he calls John and John says, yeah, I've been thinking about this too. And so, okay, good. Let's do it. <laughs> then we get everyone in. And the reality is like, if I go to sales and I have that lunch and the guy in sales says, no, you're wrong, then maybe I'm wrong. I'm brand new. Maybe I am wrong. And so then I got to go back to the drawing board. But if sales says, yeah, and product says, yeah, then I use that to go and talk to the CEO. If I just go straight to the CEO, this is, you know, the other thing is that if we're going to do positioning well, it's got to be kind of a cross-functional effort. So if I can't convince sales and product, then what's the point of even doing this? I'm not going to be able to make this new positioning stick anyway. Yeah. So that's how I would do it. And then we go in with kind of an open mind. Maybe the positioning is good, maybe it's not, but let's just look at it. So we get a gang together and then we're going to work through it. That's how I settled in on at the end. That's how I convince people to look at it because nobody cares. If your marketing's not doing well, everyone thinks you just suck at marketing. But if bad things are happening in sales, everybody's very nervous about that. Mm -hmm. Right. So, and like you almost sounds like you kind of established that beachhead of getting everyone together to talk about this squishy positioning. And yeah. it's like, it's an on-ramp into what could be a huge, huge project. I mean, I don't mean just huge with you as a, an outside consultant these days. I mean, it might be well-priced, but it's nothing compared to the scale of executing this stuff. Yeah, I think people are scared to do it because they've been maybe sold on this idea that this is like a six month thing and we're going to have to go all this stuff. But I'm telling you, like I worked at startups. We don't have six months to do anything. Like, so if we were going to go do this thing, like I get a cross-functional team together and we'd spend max two days, max two days. And so I get sales, product, customer success, senior executive team in. The trick on this is I can't just bring them in and have this like free form conversation. Like, why does everybody love our stuff? Then that's just going to turn into a battle of opinions and marketing never wins that. But the key is you get the gang together and then it's like, okay, well, we got to work through a process with steps. And so the way I do it is we'd start with, all right, well, who do we got to beat in order to win a deal or put another way? What do I have to position against? 
And there's two kinds of competition. There's whatever status quo, and sometimes that's a spreadsheet or manual labor. But then there's also anything that lands on a short list against us. So that's what I got to beat in order to win a deal. That's a pretty easy conversation. Sales knows the answer to that. Mm -hmm. I don't have to do a big research project to figure that out if I have a direct sales team. If I don't, then I do have to go do a research project to figure it out. But if I have a sales team, they're talking to people every day. They know what the status quo is. They know who else is on the short list. They know the answer to this question. So that's what I got a position against. And then I go, okay, well, what do we got that they don't have capabilities wise? And product knows the answer to this question. That's their job to know the answer to this question. So they know it's differentiating between us and competitors. We can fill this out, fill a big whiteboard full of here's all the stuff we got. Now here's the trick. And we go down that list. And for every one of those features, we're like, so what? Why does a customer care about this feature? And so what we need to do is translate the feature into value. Now that assumes that we understand what's valuable and what isn't with our customers. Now, generally, if companies in market and they've sold a reasonable amount, they actually do know that. They're selling every day. They know it because they're talking to customers every day. So we're doing this translation. So what for each of these features? And then we can't have a thousand points of value. We want two or three points of value. So we're looking for the themes, like what are the value themes that we enable? And if we do it that way, by starting with what do we got, what do we got to beat? What have we got that's different? And then we translate that into value. Now we don't just have value. We have differentiated value. We have the value that we can deliver that the competitor can't. Then the next step, and this is critical, is okay, this is the value I can deliver that nobody else can, who cares? So I'm not the best fit for everybody and every company on the planet. So what are the characteristics of a target account that make them really, really care a lot about the value that only I can deliver? And so now I've got, here's my value, here's the people that I can sell to. Now, sometimes when we do this exercise, we get to this point and you know, the here's who I can sell to doesn't seem like a very long list of people. <laughs> <laughs> a bit awkward. That's the oh shit moment where you're like, we need to fix something in product. But for the workshops that I've done, and I've done like a couple hundred of these now, usually when we get there, there's a huge chunk of the market where we can win. And the company is actually doing the opposite. The, the company is trying to sell to in all kinds of places where they can't win. But meanwhile, there's this chunk of the market that is more than big enough to meet the short-term revenue goals. But instead of just focusing on that, they're focusing on everything. And so as a result, you know, they're fighting for deals they're never going to win or they shouldn't win and wasting a lot of marketing effort on parts of the market where they don't actually have a distinct advantage. And so what we actually want to do is identify where should we win? Like, where do we win? Because we got value that the other guys can't deliver. Where do we win? And then let's focus all our marketing and sales energy on that. And so we can do an exercise like that and get it done day and a half. Mm. It's, this isn't some great big thing. Especially in startup land. You can get that whole team together, like you say, and, uh, and just push it through. Yeah. If, now, if marketing is trying to do it all on their own, well, they don't know the answers to all these questions, right? Sales has some stuff. Product has some stuff. Executive team knows a bunch of stuff. Like, but if I get the right people in the room, then all, what I'm really doing is I got a structure and I'm pulling it out of everybody. Then at the same time, I'm building agreement and alignment across the team on it because we're going to fight about it a little bit until we all agree. 
Yeah, and then we get to the end of a day and a half and we're like, okay, now we're all in agreement. Here's what we compete with. Here's how we're different. This is the value we can deliver. No one else can. These are the people that really, really care a lot about that value. Here's the market we're going to go win. And then everybody can go back to their respective teams and we're all in alignment on it. Now what we got to do is make that positioning real. And so the two big things we got to do, one, we got to take that positioning and translate it into a pitch that the sales team can use. In my opinion, that's job one. Because if sales can't tell that story, we're dead. <laughs> Very quickly. And then yeah. job two, we got to take that positioning and make it sing in the messaging for on the homepage and campaigns we're running and all the rest of it. But usually, you know, if we can get everybody in agreement, marketing's pretty good at that. Where marketing usually falls down is they're getting mixed signals from everybody about who do we actually compete with and how do we win and what's the value prop and people aren't in agreement. Once we get in agreement, usually, like my experience running marketing teams, if everybody's in agreement, it's easy as heck to go build messaging around that. Mm -hmm. Trickier part, though, and the part that I think people don't spend enough time on is, you know, we got this positioning. How do we make sure sales knows how to pitch it? And that's what you're working on at the moment, right? So I already mentioned your, your book, obviously awesome, but your next book, which you tell me I have to be patient for, <laughs> yeah. uh, is all around that. <laughs> it's, it's about implementing it into the sales, messaging into the sales teams. Yeah. Can you give us a sneak preview? What's the high level thinking on that? So right now in the work I do with companies, you know, I started out, like if I run this back like seven, eight years ago when I started consulting, you know, I work with companies, we just do the positioning bit and then we'd end there. And marketing's all happy. They go back, they fix the messaging, all this stuff. But then I would call the company like three months later, how's it going? And marketing's all happy, but sales is like, I don't know what to do with this. And so sales intellectually understands the positioning. They just don't know how to pitch it. And so when I wrote my book, the book, you know, the book I wrote ends at the end of, okay, so we have positioning and there's like one page where I'm like, Hey, you know, what's a good way to test your positioning. You should turn it into a sales pitch and pitch it to some people and see if it works. That's how I test it. <laughs> but I didn't get into like, how do we build a pitch? Like I had like one page on it. And for a couple of reasons, one, I thought, well, you know, that's a whole other book. If I got to teach you how to build a sales pitch and two, I think people know how to do that. Like I, I we're all pitching stuff today, right? There's all this sales training that salespeople go to, like Sander selling and mm -hmm. spin selling and strategic selling and all this stuff. Like, uh, surely they know how to build the pitch. But it turns out, no, nobody knows how to build a pitch. And in fact, the vast majority of the companies that I work with, which are SaaS businesses, they don't even attempt to do a pitch. Like, you know what they do? Like, they got a website and there's a button on the website that says, give me a demo. And the customer clicks that button, and by God, that's what they're going to get. They're going to get a demo, and that's all they get. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they get a demo, with no structure to it. Like it's basically like, here's how you log in. Look, there's seven drop-down menus. Let's go through each of them. Do 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 do. Let me explain every single thing. So familiar, right? This is generally what we're doing. So over in marketing, we're trying to weave the story about how we're different and our differentiated value and all this stuff. And then customers get over into the pitch and. They're showing everything like it's equal, whether it's differentiated or not. And uh, the value of that, oh, that's up to the customer to figure out. We just assume the customer is going to do that translation between feature and value. Right. So it's up to the customer to figure out what's differentiated, why is this valuable? And the thing we are fundamentally not answering in those meetings is why pick me over the other things, mm -hmm. which is the only reason a person is in that sales meeting in the first place. <laughs> but we think, oh no, they clicked a button and said, give me a demo. 
we think the customers already have all the answers. All they want to do is look at our beautiful UI or something. Mm. I, I don't know. So this is a problem. Like if you're in a crowded market and you know customers looking at three other competitors that look just like you, that's a lot of burden on the customer to try and figure out why your stuff is different. Why should they pick them? All this stuff. So anyways, I do this with my clients now because if I don't, we're in trouble. So we do the whole positioning thing. And then we spend the last three, four hours taking that positioning and translating it into a sales pitch. So the book that I'm working on now is how do you do that? Like, what's the structure of a sales pitch? How do I take this positioning and map it into a sales pitch? How do we do a good job of basically in that sales pitch, answering the question, why pick us? Like, why should a company like you pick us versus all the other things that you could potentially pick? So yeah. that's what I'm working on. Including, of course, doing nothing, which I've heard you say before is an awful lot of B2B sales. Which is actually the worst, yeah. right? The worst. So in the course of writing this book, I'm digging through the data on this and it's terrifying. Like it's awful. So the data says for B2B, in a typical B2B purchase process, 40 to 60% of B2B purchase processes, meaning we woke up in the morning, we said, the thing we're doing now sucks. We want to go buy something else. We go through this process. We look at alternatives or whatever, 40 to 60% of the time, that purchase process ends in no decision. You're going to make me cry. And <laughs> yeah, it's more like half the time, yeah. right? So half the time, it, it ends in no decision. And then you scratch at that data a little bit more. Why is there no decision? It's not because they looked at everything else and said, oh, the thing we're doing now is actually better. No, they still think it sucks. The reason they end up in no decision is they can't figure out how to confidently pick a solution. And so think about this. In B2B, usually the economic buyer, like the person that signs the check, is not the person that does the evaluation, right? right? Like the VP mm -hmm. says to somebody in their team, like, go buy us accounting software or something. And then that person has to run around, look at all the vendors, look at the stuff, talk to IT, talk mm -hmm. to end users, and then come back with a recommendation. And then the boss is going to sign off. That person is under a lot of stress. Like if they make a bad choice, bad things happen, right? Like Absolute best case, they have a new nickname and worst case, their job's at risk, right? Right, exactly. That's exactly it. Like they make the wrong choice. Everybody in the accounting team hates them. Their boss thinks there's an idiot. Maybe you fail the audit, you're going to get fired. Like it's bad. Mm. And the easiest, lowest risk decision, if I go out there and do a bunch of these demos and look at stuff and say, I can't freaking figure out why I would pick one versus the other. The easiest, lowest risk decision is go back to your boss and say, you know what? Let's just not do it now. Let's just kick the can down the road. We'll, we'll decide next year. We'll go look. Mm -hmm. next. We're in the middle of an audit. You know, there's a thousand reasons. Let's not do it now. We're busy. Um, we'll do it next year. And then that person is like, maybe I won't be here next year. <laughs> or it'll be the new guy's problem. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> Pick somebody else to go do that choice. I don't want to do it. And so what we actually want to answer in this sales meeting, our job, if we really want to get this deal, we got to paint a picture of the whole market, show where everybody fits in the market, and then give them a compelling pitch for why, look, companies like you want to pick us for these reasons. And by the way, that, that's not why you would pick them or pick them. Not that they're bad. They're good for other kinds of customers, but a customer like you needs this. And we're not doing that. Like one, we never talk about anybody else right? Because we think that's bad. Like it's, you know, we're taught that I think, like, don't talk about competitors. <laughs> because one, we think that 
you know, it looks bad. We're bashing the competition. It's like how politicians are taught never to say the uh, the competitor's name, right? Like never say the competitor's name. But as a result, we don't even talk about alternative approaches. Mm. Like we don't even talk about how competitors get stuff done. Like you know, like look, there's you you could do this in a SaaS way or not SaaS way, or you could do it this way or not this. Way. We don't even do that. We're mm. just like here's the drop down menus. Let me walk you through them. We're just talking about us. So. How do I know how to make a decision if I don't understand how you fit with everybody else in the market? The second thing is we're taught, well, no one's going to believe us anyway because we're biased. So who cares what you think, vendor? But here's the thing we don't think about. That person is buying your software. And this has been true in my career. It doesn't matter what I'm selling. The person that's this champion in the deal whose job is to make a short list and make a choice and make a recommendation almost like 99.99% of the time, that person has never bought a product like yours before. Just their first time. Mm -hmm. They might be a user of your product or a product like yours, but they've never done a purchase process before. Never. Now look at us. We eat, sleep, and breathe this whole market, right? We know all our competitors. We know what they do. We know what they're good at. We know what they're not good at, all this stuff. So why wouldn't we want to share that with this poor person whose job it is and his first timer going, uh, got to buy accounting software. I don't know who the players are. I don't know what's important, what isn't important. I don't even know what's possible in accounting software. Like, I don't know what it costs. I don't know anything. And we're just out there going, here's a feature. Here's a feature. Here's another feature. Oh, let me show you another feature. All you're doing is adding to their anxiety. You're not actually solving their problem. Their problem is, I don't understand how to think about the whole market. And so the data on this is also really interesting. So, you know, there is data out there, like what does a software buyer want in a sales process? And what that data tells us is like the top two or three things they want are all about understanding the market. Mm -hmm. So they want to understand their alternatives. They want to understand, you know, the pros and cons of the different alternatives. They want to be able to avoid landmines. Like how do they make sure they make a good choice is basically what they want from us. We're not giving that at all. We're not even trying. And if you are the vendor that does that, that gives them that lay of the land, gives them the landmarks to watch out for, like you say, the, the mines to avoid, right. you're an inherent advantage. That's like, it's like writing the RFP at that point. It's like writing the RFP. Exactly. And so really hotshot sales teams will do this. Like the first time I ever saw it in my career was I was working at IBM. And part of my job in the product launch process was to build a sales pitch deck for this product. And so my boss came in and he gave me the binder, you know, this is the binder, it's this fat, this is how you build a sales pitch at IBM. And oh my God, Amazing. this thing was such overkill. Like there was so much stuff in there you would never, ever, ever want to copy. But one of the things that I thought was really smart was they never started a pitch with like, they'd never just jump into the product ever. They wouldn't even start a pitch with like, here's the problem and this is the solution or, you know, there's trends and talk about trends. They would never do that. They would always start with, this is the way we look at the market and here's why. So they always started with IBM's unique point of view on what's going on here mm. and have a discussion with the customer about that, which was basically kind of a discussion around, hey, customer. We think this is what's really important, and here's why. And so they would attempt to sort of align the customer with their point of view on the market before they get into pitching them at all. And basically what it was is it was kind of like context setting 
for your differentiated value. Like if you think about it at a very high level, here's why we built what we built. Because we see this happening in the market for customers like you, and nobody else sees that. That's why we have a thing that nobody else has. If you can do that, then you can really clearly establish differentiated value. If you can't, like if I say, look, we see this thing in the market and the customer's like, don't care, stupid, no. (laughs) (laughs) And they're disqualified at this point. Like, why am I even going to bother pitching my differentiated value? They're basically telling me they don't care about it. So that's how IBM used to do it. And so when I left IBM, I went to work for a startup and me and the VP sales were both brand new there. And I had worked with the VP sales at another company before, so we knew each other. And so we decided we were going to retool the sales pitch decks in there. You know, and I hauled out the big binder that I'd stolen from IBM. (laughs) And I was like, hey, we should try some of this stuff. And we worked on it for a few weeks and cooked up this new pitch deck which worked really, really well. And then sales went like this and we ended up getting acquired. But what was really funny about that is the big thing we worked on was this little upfront bit that was like, hey, we look at the world like this. Like, we know you think this is your problem, but we see it like this. You know, we got a different perspective on that problem. We see the problem inside the problem or the root cause of the problem. Like, we see it like this. And we'd have this little conversation. Then we'd say, now, look, you got all these other ways of solving it. And, you know, we know you got choices. And so here's your choices. Now let's look at the pluses and minuses, knowing what we know about the problem now, right? So you could do it manually, works fine when it's really small, but then when things start growing, oh, now you got all this complexity or whatever, you can't do that. Or you could do it this other way that works fine for companies like this, but not for companies like this. And this conversation, what you're doing is again, you're painting this picture of the map. Like here's the whole market, looks like this. And then you say, now look, there's a great big hole. So for companies like you, what you actually want is a thing that does X, Y, Z, right? And the customer is either right with you or they're not. If they are, then it's like, great, now I got you. I haven't even pitched you my stuff yet. But if you're like, yeah, right, that makes sense. You're like, great, that's why we built what we built. So let me show it to you, right? Like, here's our value. Here's how we get it done. That's what the pitch should look like, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, I love it. So we're going to pivot a little bit. Sure. Turning on some things that you've just talked about actually. So one of the reasons that I was excited to have this conversation is so part of it, as I said, was you know, I've read your work and love the talks you've given and so forth. But the other thing that specifically ties to this podcast is I'm particularly trying to speak to VPs of marketing CMOs and the like. And as you mentioned, you have held those kind of roles. And so some of this is delving back into history a little bit. Yeah. But there's some things I think that are timeless and just don't change over that kind of thing. So although today you work with a lot of startups and scale ups and, and so forth. Yeah. You've worked at director level, VP level at a bunch of bigger companies. You mentioned IBM, Siebel, Nortel, all these kind of places. I got a few biggies as clients too. It's not my normal thing, but occasionally a cool one pops up and I'm like, okay, for you, I will suffer through your vendor onboarding process. Right. Well, so (laughs) it may sound boring, but but actually that's some of the stuff that I'm kind of interested in because from your your old experience being in those roles or your experience today selling to those roles, folks in in those kind of places. Mm. How do you think vendors in particular should think about this process from the outside? So, you, so you've talked a little bit about you know, the, the difference between the champion and the economic buyer and, and those kinds of things. But yeah, yeah, what are those dynamics when you're at that level, yeah, say somewhere like a, a Nortel or an IBM or, or somewhere, and there's all these different stakeholders, all this kind of potential you know, small P politics being played and mm-hmm. lots of people trying to make sure they don't get fired for picking the wrong vendor. 
Oh, yeah. So, yeah, like, have you got some great insights there? I got some opinions about this. Mm. So I think this is a really critical thing for people to understand about B2B purchase processes in general, right? So in general, B2B purchase process, there are, what is the number? It's like five to eight stakeholders involved Mm. in the deal. So you're not selling to one person, you're selling to eight people and all this stuff. But that's only kind of true. Typically, what you have is you got a champion, right? So the champion is the person that either has taken on the task or has been tasked with making a recommendation. And so one of the mistakes I think we make in B2B is we think that our job is to sell to all the stakeholders and the champion is just one of the stakeholders. So, you know, I got to make sure IT is okay and purchasing is okay and the stakeholders boss is okay and the end users are okay. And I, oh my God, and I got personas for all of those and oh shit, how am I going to do it? And shouldn't I have positioning for all of these? Because the positioning is different because what they care about is... And I think this is a way to drive yourself absolutely crazy, never sell anything. So instead, what I think you've got is you have the champion and the champion matters times a million versus all the other roles, (laughs) frankly, because if your positioning doesn't resonate for the champion, you don't get on a short list. You don't get, you know, none of the other people matter. Like you never make it to any of the other people. The second thing is that typically we as the vendor, are not selling to all the other stakeholders. The champion is selling to all the other stakeholders. So really what our job is, is our job is to sell to the champion. And then once we got the champion hooked and a deal is cooking, our job is to arm the champion to handle all of the potential objections in the other stakeholders. So I'll give you an example of this. So I I had this VP marketing job. And I had the Gartner guys were trying to sell me something. And um, well, I was actually looking for some bespoke research. And I had talked to a bunch of other vendors, but I kept coming back to Gartner. And I really liked the, the guy from Gartner was really good. So he had a good pitch, whatever. But he was terrible at this all other stakeholders thing. Like he kept saying, well, he, he wanted a meeting with my boss. And I was like, buddy, my boss isn't making the decision. I'm making the decision. He's doing whatever I tell him to do. Mm-hmm. Like, trust me. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you don't need to meet with my boss. In fact, you're going to mess this deal up <laughs> if I put you in my boss because my boss is going to ask you a whole bunch of questions and derail this whole thing. So that was the you know, annoying thing, number one. Annoying thing, number two, was, you know, again, he kept trying to go above me and beside me and all this other stuff, but he didn't really understand like where the real potential blockages were for this deal. So for me and the company I was in, the big potential blockage was going to be purchasing. Okay. So the way this works, and it does at most big companies, is if you're a, a senior level person, in this case, I'm a VP at a big company, I've got a clip. So there's a number that if the thing I'm buying is below that number and it's in my budget, then purchasing doesn't get a say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if it's above that number, even if it's in my budget, then it goes to purchasing. And then, you know, that might take six months and maybe we get it done and maybe we don't. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so the guy comes and he gives me this proposal. And the proposal is like $300,000. And my clip for purchasing is two fifty. dollars yep. mm-hmm. <laughs> So I came back and said, it needs to be two fifty. dollars <laughs> We can do this the easy way. <laughs> and said, yeah. yeah. And so he's giving me his, uh, his big sales pitch and all this stuff. And finally, I said, buddy, it needs to be two fifty dollars because if it's three hundred, dollars then I got to go to purchasing. We're never going to get this deal done this year. <laughs> and so finally, he came. 
But again, like, I think there's this misunderstanding. Like, he needs to be working with me, like the champion, instead of trying to go around me. He needs to, you know, we're partners in this deal. Mm -hmm. So he should have come and asked me, what's my clip? If he was a smart guy, he deals with great big companies. He should have come and asked me before he even lobbed me a, a proposal. He should have said, look, like, does this go to purchasing? Yeah. What's your cutoff for purchasing? And I would have told him, and then we would have, you know, saved ourselves a couple of weeks. <laughs> that whole exploration of the landscape is, like you said, can be really kind of delicate, right? In terms of figuring out, is the person I'm speaking to really the champion? Is it somebody the champion's delegated to? All of that kind of stuff. Where are the real blockages? lie. Well, this is it. And sometimes what you have in B2B is chatty people, right? So you'll get your rep all like, oh my God, we've got the steel cooking or whatever. And then you'll find out, no, they just got a chatty person mm -hmm. that isn't the champion. It hasn't been tasked with doing this. Somebody else is the champion. You know, there's this great book on this. The guys that wrote the book Challenger Sale mm -hmm. wrote this book called The Challenger Customer, which a lot of people haven't read. I haven't read that one. But in my opinion, it's kind of a genius book. Mm. And it's really just about this. Like it's about personas and the different kinds of personas you have in a deal. And how do you know you're selling to the right one? And how do you know your rep isn't just getting to run around by some chatty Kathy and the deal, things like that. Yeah. So I think, you know, in, in the work that I do with positioning, we're really focused on this champion, right? And what I see in companies is they're spending a lot of time doing persona work and all this stuff for all the other personas, and they're treating the champion like just one of six, right? Where meanwhile, the champion matters like times a million. Then yeah. <laughs> it's not like the other ones don't matter. They do, but you got to work through the champion. You're not going directly with them. Like mm -hmm. we're, we're not directly messaging the end users. Like they have nothing to do with making this deal happen. Yeah. But you got to understand the objections. So if the end users are like, generally the people that are not the champion can't make the deal happen, but they can kill it. They can block it. And that's all they are is blockers. So you should treat them like that. So the only thing that should be in those personas is how are they going to kill my deal? So what are they going to say that kills my deal? And how do I arm my champion to make sure that gets resolved? Mm -hmm. So if IT says, Oh, it has to be whatever compliant. Here's what you say, champion. Yeah. Oh, yeah, by the way, your IT people are going to say this. Here's how you answer that question. Oh, your IT people are going to say they have to integrate with this. This is how we do it. Blah, blah, blah. It's objection handling yeah. is all it is. Yeah. We're treating all these other stakeholders like they're the champion and we need to know, you know what their habits are, and what they like, and blah, 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 and all this stuff. All we really need to know is what's their objection and how do we arm the champion to handle it? Perfect. Great insights. Love it. I'm going to pivot again a little bit sure. onto just your kind of personal backstory and career path specifically. So one of the things that I'm hopeful is really interesting to people who are listening. It's so weird. Well, everyone's is weird. And I'm interested in- It's true, right? In marketing. Yeah. Everyone's got the, these weird paths through and so forth. I remember you have said in the past, I know and it's quite clear looking from the outside in that some of your kind of breakthroughs in positioning work have definitely opened subsequent doors in your career, right? You've done those pieces of work and then you've opened doors with the work, essentially, you know, by, by being good at the stuff, which is obviously one way of getting ahead. But I'm sure there's a ton else yeah. that's going on there. So I, I'd love, when you look back over your career, what do you think were those breakthrough moments or like great bosses, bad bosses, great mentors, anything that you look back on, you think, yeah, that really made a difference? Hmm. Well, you know, I got kind of like how I even got into tech was just good luck mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. And then, you know, a friend of mine helping me out. 
But like I got a job at a startup out of engineering school, but they hired me in product marketing. And I got the job because my friend worked in there and put in the word for me. But the first thing we worked on was this positioning thing. And we had no idea what we were doing. We were just kind of monkeying around till we got it. And we got really lucky. We got something that worked. The thing was a rocket to the moon. And then we got acquired. And so you know, then I had this big fancy job at the big company and inherited a bunch of products. And that got me really interested in positioning because I'd had that early success at it, mm -hmm. even though, you know, didn't know what the hell I was doing. And so that got me down the whole rabbit hole of like, well, how should we have done this? Like, what were we supposed to be doing? And so that led me down a path to do that. You know, and then I ended up repositioning a couple of things at the new company and that worked out pretty good. And then I was like, okay, this is my jam. This is what I do now. <laughs> That's my thing. Like one of the things I think was that I didn't plan on doing, but I ended up doing in my career that I thought was really good is I bounced between big companies and small companies yeah. a lot mm -hmm. in the early part of my career, not by choice, because I was working at little companies that they were getting acquired. But I think I learned a lot by seeing the contrast between this is how we do it at a small company, this is how we do it at the big company. Mm -hmm. A lot of marketers I see will work at one job and they'll be like, okay, well, this is how it, it's done. And it's like, oh, you, you wish. <laughs> but no, <laughs> every company is different. And so you do a few of these back and forth between big ones and small ones and you get an idea, to, you start figuring out what you don't know. And that I think is really important. And then I don't know, like, you know, I didn't have any mentors as I was going along, like not for lack of trying, man, but um, it, it was weird, I think, back then in tech, but I didn't really have any mentors. And I felt like I didn't get a lot of help. I did a lot of asking for help and I didn't get a lot of help mm. back. I do a significant amount of helping random people now because I'm a little bit pissed at how little help I got yeah, yeah. <laughs> or like how nobody ever responded to my emails when I was like, hey, can I get some time? Because no. I don't know how this works. And it wasn't until I was really senior and people kind of knew who I was that anybody would give me the time of day. And that kind of pissed me off. When you didn't need it anymore. Yeah, when I didn't need it anymore. Yeah, then everybody wants to talk to me. But I thought that was good jumping around a lot. I thought was good. Mm. I learned a lot. You know, like I, I ended up at IBM at one point and, you know, people don't think much of IBM now, but holy man, I learned a lot working at IBM and, and I hated it. Like I didn't like working there at all. Like it was a very long five, six years, mm -hmm. but it's amazing how much I come back to stuff that we did at IBM, you know, and even a lot of stuff that at the time I was like, well, who the hell would do it like this? Why would you do it like this? And then Three jobs later, you'd be like, ha ha, that's why we did it. Yeah. <laughs> well, especially when you talk about a company that's the size of a city, right? Like it's right. a big city. It's an incredible number of people all trying to achieve some kind of shared mission. Unbelievable. Yeah. I've had a lot of fun in this phase of my career, which is like, you know, at some point I had done the VP marketing thing like five, six, seven, seven times, I think. Mm -hmm. And, you know, after I came out of the last one, I was like, I'm really going to do this again. <laughs> maybe I've done this. And then I thought, oh, well, maybe I'll just do something different and switch to consulting. And that was a whole journey too, like, but fun. Like, but it was a lot different than I thought it would be. And I think most people that start in consulting think, oh, well, it's just like working full time, except you have three or four different clients mm -hmm. or whatever. No, <laughs> it's not like that at all. So 
it took me a long time to kind of figure out what's my offering and then who do I see, you know, who's a really good fit for that offering. And then how do I, and then there's all this positioning, like how do I position this thing for these people? And they, like nobody's out there looking for positioning help. Mm-hmm. They think they got a problem with marketing or messaging or something else. Yeah. I mean, now maybe a little bit different, but when I started, nobody's looking for positioning help. Nobody even knows what positioning is. <laughs> I'm trying to sell this thing. Yeah. So that's been really fun too. I never thought I'd be a consultant. I didn't see this in my future. But now that I'm here, I'm like, ah, I should have been doing this sooner. I mean, sometimes you need the backstory and the experience to get there. Totally. So that actually leads into my final question, I think, which we can just cover and, uh, and then wrap up. But that's around personal development, especially as a you know, one-man band now. How do you keep improving? How do you stay on top of your game? What do you read, listen to, watch? I don't know. Like, Where do you get that from? Like, This was easier earlier in my career. Like, so when I started, you know, I didn't have a marketing background. Mm -hmm. And so I felt at the beginning, the early part when I was in marketing, everybody knows all this stuff and I don't know shit. (laughs) And I had this worry Mm -hmm. about that. And so I read everything and I took courses, like I took tons of courses. I went and did all this post-grad stuff Mm -hmm. in marketing because I had this feeling like I was behind. I haven't done this academically. Yeah. Like all these marketers knew this stuff that I didn't know. And so I did a lot of that in the first 10 years of my career. I was like, you know, if I wasn't working, I was trying to figure out something, you know, and and like literally read all the books. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I like subscribed to all the blogs and all that stuff. It gets harder when you get more senior because there's a lot of stuff that you already know. And so, you know, you're trying to find this cream of stuff that you don't know so that you can keep growing. And so occasionally something pops up that's, you're like, holy shit, there's a whole bunch of stuff in here that's amazing. So like recently I had this, so I still read a lot of books, but a lot of times I read the books and I'm just like, oh, come on. (laughs) There's gotta be something else in here. But recently, maybe it's on my, maybe it's because it's on my desk. Oh yeah, it is. It's right to hand. So one of the things I thought was really interesting, like, I don't think there's a lot of marketing books that are based on data. And if they aren't based on data, you know, I like to think they're based on a lot of experience, right? Like I did this thing with 200 clients and here's what I learned, which isn't statistically significant data, but at least, you know, it's that. A lot of marketing books are just like, I thought of this thing and it's cool. What do you think? I did this thing this one time. (laughs) Yeah. And sometimes there's a nugget of stuff in there that's kind of interesting, but sometimes you're like dude, no, <laughs> like, go do it again somewhere. And the answer is no. But like the guys that wrote the Challenger Sale, Challenger Customer, I appreciated those books because they were based on this kind of deep longitudinal research, or whatever. Anyways, the guy that wrote the Challenger Sale, one of the guys, his name is Matthew Dixon. I just came out with this book called The Jolt Effect. This is the best book I've read in a while. And it's really a book about sales. But I think if you're in B2B, you'd be crazy not to read this book. What they did was at the start of the pandemic, they worked with a company and they went out to a whole bunch of companies that they were working with and they analyzed their gong recordings, like, you know, these recordings of the sales, sales call calls. Recordings, yeah. Then they did this AI machine learning model, blah, blah thing <laughs> to look and see what works and doesn't work on a sales pitch. And then the results of it are in this book. It's super, super fascinating. I am immediately buying that for myself and uh, the folks on the sales team. Yeah, you should read it. It's like, unfortunately, it is exactly like Challenger Sale in that it reads like a freaking textbook. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's a slog. It's a bit dry. Like, yeah. Let's be mm-hmm. honest. Like it's hard yeah. to read. You're like, I wish these guys could write a better book, but <laughs> which, you know, it's like it's a mean thing to say, but it's true. 
the whole thing is dog-eared and highlighted and it's a really interesting set of things. And what is interesting in it is a lot of it goes against conventional sales wisdom. Interesting. Which I think is really interesting because conventional sales wisdom is actually not based on any data. And so this has been the most interesting thing I've read in a while. But yeah, I'm still doing the same thing. I read all the books and I occasionally take a course mm. and stuff. And then I have my network of super smart people that I'll call up and say, how did you do this? <laughs> because I don't know mm-hmm. how to do this. So that's how I'm trying to keep sharp. I don't know. I'm finding it's getting harder and harder in my old age. I love book recommendations. It's phenomenal, especially where you get somebody saying, you know, this one's a tough one, but it's worth it. Well, this, this thing, like I'm telling you, I feel bad because I don't think this guy's going to sell a lot of this book. But I was pretty excited when I heard it was coming out. And I, so I was on the, you know, mm-hmm. the pre-release list and all this stuff. And then I read it and went, oh, baby. Now, that said, a lot of what this is, like my friend read it because I recommended it to my friend. And my friend said, you know what this book is? This book is like, this is bad positioning. This book is Challenger Sale plus AI. <laughs> <laughs> And it kind of is, but it's interesting. It reinforces a lot of the stuff that they found out in the original Challenger sale research, which would make sense. I thought this was a great one. I don't think anybody's reading that book, but they should. Great. That is such a good place to end. Phenomenal recommendation. Thank you so much for making the time to speak to me today, April. Really enjoyed our conversation as always, and really appreciate you taking the time. All right. Well, thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Let's do it again. Thank you for listening today. If you have any questions about anything we discuss on the podcast, drop me a line by email at podcast at searchpilot.com or get in touch on Twitter, where I'm at Will Critchlow. This podcast is the business class lounge from Searchpilot. Searchpilot helps large websites prove the value of SEO by making SEO tests easier, faster, and more accurate. You can find out more about Searchpilot at searchpilot.com. Today's podcast was produced by Mark Cotton and hosted by me, Will Critchlow. If you enjoyed the conversation, please recommend it to a friend.